Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome to Extra the Podcast, everybody. I'm Melvin Robert. Thank you so much for tuning in. We have a great episode for you today. First up, a backstabbing brother, Kate's icy cold shoulder and accusations of royal racism. Journalist Omid Scobie has covered the royal family for more than a decade, and now he is spilling the tea in his new book, Endgame, and he's breaking it all down to Extra. Then, Golden Bachelor Gary Turner found love with Teresa Nist on the show. The pair reveals when they knew this was the real deal and how they're preparing for their upcoming televised wedding. Plus, it's time to grab your golden ticket because the Chocolate Factory is back. Extra talks to the stars of Wonka, Timothy Chalamet and Hugh Grant. But we begin here with Julianne Moore and Natalie Portman. Julianne plays a woman at the center of a scandalous May-December romance. And Natalie is the actress who is going to bring her tabloid-soaked story to the big screen. The new film, May-December, is inspired by the media frenzy created by the famous 90s case of Mary Kay Letourneau. I sat down with the film stars to talk about the highly anticipated movie and the Oscar buzz that's coming along with it. It's so lovely to be with both of you. Thank you. This story was the story in the 90s. It was such yeah. a huge tabloid story. I remember my mom and dad talking about it, family members talking about it. How familiar were you all with this story? Well, I certainly knew about it, but this is not this is this is not the actual right. story of 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 the woman. Yeah. It's inspired yeah. by it, yeah. and I think that Sammy Birch, who was our screenwriter, was sort of sort of took elements of this to to um, tell a story about what it is um, about someone who crosses the boundary, and then how it is you know normalized, and then someone else comes to tell the story of that to find out what you know their what the truth is. When in fact, I think none of us really know what the truth is about anything in life, right? It's like We all think we do, yeah. but until you're in it, you don't know. That's right, yeah. and it really is all point of view. It's all perspective, and there are so many shifting perspectives in this story, and there's so much about performance, about what Gracie is performing in her life, how she's presenting 
herself and what Elizabeth is is learning from Gracie so that she can perform what she thinks of Gracie's story. So it's a it's it's really all these shifting perspectives. Mm-hmm. What about for you? Well, I think that one of the things that was so smart about how Sammy wrote the script was that she chose to make it 20 years after the tabloid events. And so there's this time that makes you think, okay, what happens to these humans Mm -hmm. after all the noise has died down? Mm -hmm. What happens? What's the effect on their lives? And then seeing then this kind of reignition of it with this actors coming in to interfere with their lives um, while trying to represent their lives, I think is, is just makes for an amazing conflict that's interesting. There's so much nuance with it too. There's high levels of emotion. There's some dark comedy. Mm-hmm. There's a lot that's going on. When you all went toe to toe in some of those emotional moments, talk to me about the process of doing it and then how you felt after you were done with it. It's probably fun. It was great. Yeah. It was great. I yeah. love Natalie, and yeah. I found it incredibly easy to be with her and to work with her. And it was a very, it was, it was a very strong partnership. I feel like right from the beginning, and and that's important for me when I'm doing stuff. Well, whenever I'm doing stuff, I'm, I always welcome it because I think it's like it's like what you do together that that creates the movie, right? Mm-hmm. So I think we both went into it having this. Um, having like a a corridor of like play and communication and so it was very easy to lean into these things that were dark and difficult and weird and you know I felt you know like in the makeup scene I felt really free Mm -hmm. to touch Natalie because we spent a lot of time together and I liked her and I was like you know so so it kind of lets you go go deeper into it Mm -hmm. yeah I think I I love Julie so much and it was so easy and so fun to just spend time and work together. And then Todd created a really safe space too, where he Mm. was so prepared and so precise about everything he communicated with us. And, and so when you feel that at ease, you can play and, you know, and it's so fun too, when you're working with someone as incredible as as Julie that like you know you can see like the minor variations like when you do something there's like a shift you know that like uh-huh. you can you can push each other and yeah. you can like you know mess with not mess with each other in a <laughs> yes. bad way but like yeah. you can play within the scene so. I remember when we were doing the cooking scene too because it's like I, there's a line about you know be careful because if you you know if you keep it on too long you could ruin it and I didn't want to hit it too hard because you don't want to, but but I just felt like I could hit it a little harder <laughs> because it was that you know and I'm like you ruin it and it just it was just fun yeah, yeah it's just really fun to yeah. do yeah what, what was the vibe like in between takes when you all weren't working between you two easy what'd you do you know, talked about our kids yeah you know, we talked about like dinner lunch um, <laughs> a lot of food so <laughs> like new york you know yeah. we just talked about this just like people yeah just life stuff really because it was such yeah. a quick process i know 23 days mm-hmm. no rehearsal yeah what was that like it was fun. I mean, I think there's there's an energy that you almost feel like you're making a student film and you're yeah. just all passionate about it and everyone's there because they're passionate about it. Right. And and it's it's scary because you do have so little time, but then when you have Todd who's he just knows exactly what he's doing and prepares so well and he also had all of the these like inspiration films mm-hmm. and images that he shared with all of us. So tonally it felt like we were all on the same page. Mm-hmm. Like we all knew 
tonally what movie we were making, which yeah. was really helpful. Oscar buzz. People are talking about the Oscars. You two have Oscars, and you've been in the business for quite some time. Mm-hmm. Do you pay attention to that stuff at this point? Do you go with it? Do you just kind of focus on your work? How do you process that? It's hard to not pay attention to it. Yeah, it's yeah. Like, <laughs> listen, listen, we all love, everybody loves praise, attention. You know, we all want everybody to see our movie. And I think you can't help but hear stuff. Um, but but I think the most important thing is to is to enjoy your work, be proud of your work, get it out there, communicate about it, and and um, and and look at it all as a celebration of like what what wonderful work there is, you know, mm-hmm. in a given year. Is there anybody that you two would love to work with that you haven't at this point? Hmm. That's a good question. That is a good question. Scorsese. <laughs> Right. Let's get yeah. let's get it in one of his movies. Yeah. You and me. Yeah. Let's do All right. it. Yeah. We'll get it. Yeah. All right. You hear it, Marty? Yeah. Come on. We're getting in one. Two-hander. <laughs> what would you call it? You guess you do a whole pitch. What would you say yeah. to him? What would your pitch be? Oh. Nat and Julie travel around the world. I don't know. Yes. I guess. <laughs> Monsters. <laughs> Thank you both. Really Thank nice to you. meet you. Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. May December is out now in select theaters and is also streaming on Netflix. Next up, a backstabbing brother, Kate's icy cold shoulder, and accusations of royal racism. This guy has covered the royal family for more than a decade, and now journalist Omid Scobie is spilling all the scorching hot English tea in his explosive new book, Endgame. The author sat down with extras Megan Wright to break down some of the palace rocking bombshells. Take a listen. This comes on the heels of obviously Spare, and then we saw the Netflix documentary, and now we're kind of looking back at also I mean, the coronation as well. Tell me, what has the feedback been so far? I mean, it's interesting. As you and I sit here, so much of the world, and including the British press, haven't actually read the book. So mm-hmm. there's been a lot of assumptions. Um, there have been small leaks here and there. Just like Spare, there was another language that leaked in certain courses. And mm. so people have been translating it on Google Translate and kind of trying to piece together what the book is about. I think there's a lot of assumptions that this is the same as the last book, Finding Freedom, which was, of course, Harry and Meghan's story. But this is a book that Harry and Meghan don't appear on until, like, page 146 or something. This is a story of the, the future of the royal family, but also the current state of it. And 
you can't really talk about the current state of it without looking at the events of recent years, whether that was Harry and Meghan's exit, the goings-on with Prince Andrew, Charles with Camilla, who we never thought would kind of be the queen, now wow. being the queen. So I think all of these things needed to kind of be explored, um, kind of through a lens of, is this still the royal family that upholds the same morals of values that we celebrated the queen for, John, her 70 years on the throne? What did you find? Is it? <laughs> <laughs> I think what we find is a very complex family dynamic that is often fractured and dented by the sort of obsession with PR and in, in, public image and poll results. Um, that relationship between the press and the royal family is not often talked about because it's kind of like giving away how the cookies made. You know, I've covered the royals since 2011, and I've been on all sides. I, you know, I've been doing everything that the palace expects of you to get make sure that I'm at those secret media briefings, that I'm at those private drinks receptions with William, Kate, and Harry, and having private conversations with them. But then I've also felt that there are times where the biggest story is in a place where they don't want you to cover it. And so, with this book, it was about burning the bridges and just like focusing on shining a light in the darkest places mm -hmm. um, and telling people what that actually looks like. That this is a family that perhaps is failing in many places to kind of keep up with the times. You know, there are the big issues that surround them that are constantly avoided, such as, say, the connection to or the history of slavery within the royal institution, the ancestors that were really kind of the pioneers of the slave trade that then built the House of Windsor off the backs of it. That wealth, that fortune amassed today comes from that time, much of it. And it's, a, it's an area that the royal family don't want to talk about when the predominantly uh, black and brown Commonwealth, the very diverse and mixed UK, are desperate to have those conversations and see accountability and, and just a, a more progressive approach to the matter than sweeping it under the royal rugs. I think what's interesting, too, is that that issue, whether it be class, racism, as you mentioned, comes up within their personal family matters as well. Yeah. We look at Megan and the conversations, what she's accused members of the royal family, and you explore that. Has that, I mean, what are your thoughts on that too? Just the mm. fact that she is a biracial American woman who is now married into the royal family. Yeah. What does that dynamic look like? You know, I think with Megan's arrival, you know, she was an American, mixed-race woman, very accomplished and ready, very willing to do the work. For the royal family, it was like the golden goose opportunity where she was going to come and bring them forwards into a new era where suddenly within the House of Windsor, you could see diversity and representation in this very kind of like traditionally white and staid, often outmoded institution. And rather than embrace that and make it work, the challenges that her arrival introduced, such as dealing with uh, uh, racism and prejudice in the British newspapers, many of which they are in close relationships with, were causing so much damage to a person that it pushed someone to the point of wanting to commit suicide or at least thinking about it. And when faced with that, rather than help or nurture or understand, 
um, it went the opposite direction. And I think whether you like Meghan or not, and I realize she's become a very polarizing figure, this is about the treatment of another human being, a, a human being that joined a, a traditional British institution to serve and was willing to do so, but ultimately wasn't accepted. And I think that speaks volumes about the royal family and their attitudes towards people of different backgrounds. And that also includes different opinions. You know, for me as a royal correspondent, my approach has often been to scrutinize the royals in the same way that we do politicians and to be critical, even if that's going to cause me problems the next day with the royal press officers, for example. Um, but that is not something that they appreciate. They like to operate in a kind of echo chamber where to the audience that they dance for, um, they continue to sort of like do as has been done for many years. For those outside of it, it's easier to silence or ignore. Is that evident in the Queen acknowledging Pierce Morgan's defense of the firm mm. against Harry and Meghan? I mean, Piers Morgan was on this very show and he spoke quite cryptically about the royal family and someone within it thanking him for um, the comments that he had made to defend the royal family from what he called racist attacks from Harry and Meghan. I think the fact that there was just even this sort of feeling within the institution that these were quote unquote racist attacks shows this kind of like willing ignorance to rather than understand and try and learn about the situation to sort of push it away to think that it is a an opinion of uh, that is lesser than and to then find out that uh, Queen Camilla is the person that was not named at the time and has continued this relationship with a number of extremely polarizing media figures who many of whom have been part of the pylon of Meghan, including Jeremy Clarkson, the British Top Gear presenter, who Camilla was photographed hobnobbing at a Christmas party at just weeks after he had written the most appallingly racist opinion piece about her, suggesting that people in Britain should throw excrement at her and uh, sort of shout her down in the streets. This feeds into a really toxic culture that sort of like bubbles under the surface in the UK. Uh, racism is everywhere, but I think that it would be nice to see that the institution that is at the top of our country mm -hmm. at least cares about that and would like to change it. With all that that's going on, and again, you're kind of pulling back the curtain, showing mm. the skeletons in the closet, where do you think Charles goes from here? I think for Charles, he's got a tough challenge ahead because even within the institution, they refer to him as the transitional monarch. You know, there are people at Buckingham Palace that refer to him in their press briefings as the caretaker king. Uh, to me, they called him the bridge to the true successor, William. But I think it's important to remember that Charles isn't here for a minute. His reign could be 15, 20 years long. And within that time, a time which is crucial to bring in change, uh, steadying the ship or just keeping things as they are isn't quite enough. And so I think when we saw him in Kenya recently acknowledging the atrocities of the past in a very abstract term when talking about those links to the slave trade, 
I think for the Commonwealth, they'd like to hear a bit more about it. You only need to look at King Willem Alexander of the Netherlands, who stood in front of his country and apologized for his family's ancestral links to the slave trade, but also acknowledged how much of an impact they still have on the modern day Netherlands. Mm -hmm. This is how you lead a country. This is how you do your country proud, but also bring it forward into the modern society that we live in. I think you called him the true successor, William? Yeah. So when they refer to William as the true successor, do you think he lives up to that? I mean, when we see him, he looks like he is playing the part. He knows his role. He's been prepped and, yeah. and has been heading down this path for a while. Do you think that him and Kate are prepared to be the next true monarchs? Yeah. With William, we've seen this kind of like rapid growth and change in him in the last five or six years. You know, the press used to call him lazy and work shy. And, you know, some of it perhaps was a little out of order. Some of it maybe was a little honest. But we have seen this man now step into true air mode. You know, he has really embraced what his path or his destiny is and is clearly putting the work in. You know, we've seen him uh, bringing the Earthshot Prize to the world stage and like really wanting to like bring change to uh, alongside his work as he says he doesn't just want to highlight, which was perhaps a bit of a controversial comment given that his family have been doing this job for many years. Mm -hmm. um, but I think along the way, we've also seen uh, kind of like a detachment, a hardness form in William where he's had to kind of relinquish himself to like the company man role, which is you do as it's as expected. And so here was a guy who once hated the press more than Harry, who between his brother and himself always had this pact that we would never let the media and the British games that go on with the press uh, get in between the two of them like it happened with Charles and Diana, for those to now be the things that ripped open those fractures in their relationship and for the people around him to have been responsible for that. You know, I go into great detail in the book about how his private secretary, his communication secretary, he himself were giving out information about Harry and Meghan to sections of the British press to help improve his own image. And that came at great cost. So, you know, when we look at William as a person, of course, he's doing the work and he's doing it well. But you also have to look at him as the potential future or the future head of the Church of England. So do his actions and morals and values uphold those principles? And you know, ultimately, these are publicly funded figures. So I think in this world, this democratic age, we should be able to talk about them yeah. in that way. You do look at the relationship in the book between William and Harry, but you also look at the relationship between Kate and Meghan as yeah. well. And you talk about, at one point, she's shuddering when she hears her name. Where did that fracture happen? Yeah. Yeah, I think Meghan and Kate were damned from the very start because, unbeknownst to us at the beginning, Harry and William were already on, at odds with each other. The, the fractures were already there. So that created a divide between Meghan and Kate from the very beginning. Now, it's no secret that even people at the palace would tell us that these are two very different women with very different outlooks on life. You don't have to be best friends with your sister-in-law. I, I think the expectation for that is a bit unrealistic. But I think there have been times where we've certainly seen Kate, who is a mental health advocate, who is a, 
who champions the early years sector and all the research that goes into the early years of a child's life, including pregnancy, and had a woman who had just come from the outside, like her once upon a time, who was going through challenges to her mental health throughout her pregnancy to be ignored during that time. I think one can say it's not her responsibility to look out for people. She's got enough on her own plate. She's a busy working mother. But at the same time, I think it's okay to question, like, was that appropriate? Was that acceptable? Um, or was there something more to it? Was there a, a bias there? Was there a, um, a dislike from the very beginning? Harry himself has said that William didn't like Meghan from the start. Mm -hmm. Did that transfer to Kate's, you know. So I think when looking back at their relationship, although a lot of it is kind of what we put on women, I think, in the press, which is they've got to be either at each other's throats or best friends, and I don't think either really ever happened, when analyzing it and kind of looking at how do these people behave, like what's, are they doing the right thing? You know, I think it's important to kind of retrace those steps. Do you think the rift is worse between the brothers than it is between King Charles and Harry? Yeah. The rift between father and son is very different between the two brothers. The brothers are at a point of no return. It doesn't look like reconciliation is on the cards because there's an unwillingness to even engage in conversation. At least with Charles, there's a, there's a back and forth there. There's an open line of communication. And whilst still very early on in this process, it's much further than we've seen with anyone else in the family. Thank you. I appreciate that. Endgame, Inside the Royal Family and the Monarchy's Fight for Survival, is out now. All right, everybody. Well, it was a happy ending for the Golden Bachelor Gary Turner, who got engaged to Teresa Nist on last week's finale. Extras Mona Kosar Abdi sits down with the new couple, and they open up about their happy ending who knew about their engagement and how they're preparing for their January 4th wedding. Plus, Gary discusses saying goodbye to Leslie and her feelings that he was dishonest. Hi guys, congratulations. Hi. <laughs> oh, Thank thanks you. very much. Thank, Thank you. So you. Much. I need to see the ring. I oh, need yeah. this ring. Oh my gosh. Hey. Look at the sunglasses <laughs> on. I love it. Thank you. How do you guys mm. feel? Oh, we're over the moon elated. <laughs> and, and relieved. Yeah. We don't have a secret to keep anymore. Yeah. Yeah. That was so hard for those weeks to keep that a secret. And when you're so excited yeah. about someone, to keep it in is oh, hard. I suppressed it for so long. I mean, seriously, my sisters were convinced that it didn't happen. I was just so dead bad. Pan, now they're saying, you're the best actress ever. Because we didn't know, and they went nuts last night. I wish so I had, had been there. You had to keep it from your own family as well. I yeah, yeah. Well, I chose to. I yeah. wanted, I wanted them to be surprised. So. Yeah. Are you guys ready? I hear this wedding is about to be televised. I mean, are we ready? Oh, we're trying to get ready. Yeah. <laughs> we're working on it. I mean, fortunately, I have a daughter who's really great into this, and she's created a vision board. And so we've got, you know, we've got ideas about the flowers and the greenery and the tableware and the dresses and who's going to be in the wedding. So it's it's really exciting. It's happening really fast. Oh, I bet. I can only imagine. Yeah. Um, I knew, though, I want to say that I knew since that diner date that oh. this would happen. Did really? you, guys, you guys go back to the diner date at all? Yeah. Did we go back to it? Is that what you asked? Or Yes, I'm sorry. I meant, like, do you guys, like, think about it and revisit that time? Oh, all the time. Mm -hmm. Because it, it's it's one of those 
watershed moments where I look back and I think the funny part is we talked mm -hmm. nonstop probably for 30 minutes, both of us at mm -hmm. the same time. And yet we were able to remember and listen and, and recall all that was discussed. Mm -hmm. It was really a fun moment that because of editing, there's only several minutes of it seen. Yeah. He says now that he really thought it was such a fantastic date and such a great connection, but he had to continue with the process and not get stuck on that first date. And I stood back and I really had, and I allowed him and I knew that that was the process and he had to explore it with every woman. And, and seriously, I, I wouldn't want, you know, to force myself on anyone and just let him find out who it, who it was naturally, you know, just, just let it work. Definitely. I will say not many first dates have a flash mob. So I love that little. Oh, my God. Oh, I have to. I would, <laughs> yeah. Oh, my gosh. In my head, I'm saying, oh, my God, we're in the middle of a flash mob. I cannot wait till everyone sees this. I'm going, this is like that was one of the most incredible moments of my life. I really, I loved it so much. Whoever yes, put that together. Thank you so much. It was a great episode. Uh, Gary, you know, you had you did. Uh, Teresa says she let you go through the process. You did go through the process, which unfortunately mm -hmm. means you had to break some hearts. What was that like? I know that was agonizing for you. Um, every rose ceremony became more and more difficult than the one before. I mean, mm -hmm. when you work so hard to develop a, a connection and some emotional feelings for someone, only to be the person that has to send them home is horrible. I don't wish that experience on anyone. Um, so with Ellen and with mm -hmm. Faith and then with Leslie, each one got more and more difficult. I, I, I do not mm -hmm. want to do that again, yeah. ever. Was it hard because, I mean, there's no blueprint. You were the first golden bachelor and now the first golden couple. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, indeed, I had no guidebook, no instruction book to how to do this. But I just tried really hard to keep my heart open, to give myself 100% to each of the women in turn as I was with them. And that's all you can do. I mean, we're imperfect humans at best. So you do the best you can in a situation like that and hope for the best. And I mean, yeah. look what happened. No, and I, I indeed got the best. I think he did a phenomenal job of really concentrating on each woman and giving his full attention and full consideration to every woman. And that's what he needed to do and just be there in the moment and experience it. Teresa, I mean, it's never easy to watch the person that you were in love with go on dates with other people. But can you explain to me just did it get harder as it went along or were you just, you know, let go and what comes back to you is meant to be? You know what? I really did go into this with an open mind and I knew exactly what this process was. So I couldn't I couldn't harbor any feelings of jealousy. I had to allow him to go through the process. You know, I watched every episode with my family. And it was always surprising to me what I saw because I didn't see what was happening with every other woman. He did try to prepare me, but it's not the same as seeing it really happen. So, you know, it was it was interesting. Yeah. It was great. I mean, and, you know, I lived through it. it the, was okay. the thing, she deserves such a compliment because she's completely unselfish. Um, at moments when I would almost expect someone to show a little jealousy. Yeah. She absolutely did not. She stayed open-minded about the whole situation. I, I was so impressed by that. What well, was it like, Gary, watching it back, though? I want to get your perspective as well. 
all I mean, what particular part are you talking about watching back? Just the whole show, because I mean, you're seeing parts that you weren't privy to. Oh, yeah. There's so much of it that I didn't know what was going on as the as the episodes unfold. I'm watching and I go, oh, I didn't know that the women had such good chemistry behind Mm -hmm. the scenes. I knew I felt at ease with them as a group and I loved being around them, but I had no idea that they were getting along so well. I mean, I've learned that Mm -hmm. Teresa's best friends in the mansion were Faith and Leslie. And so it's like that was sort of a revelation. And each episode brought something that was new that I was unaware of. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the most, no, the go ahead. I'm sorry. Most difficult episode to watch, I happened to end up watching by myself. And that was The Women Tell All. It started out lighthearted. And then, you know, watching Joan and watching Ellen and finally watching Faith, I was bawling my eyes out because I love Faith you know, good friends. And it was, it was difficult. And he actually tried to console me that night. And I was sort of like, I really just need to have a good cry. That's it. And just need to be by myself and have a good cry. And then yeah, I mean, yeah, it's a it unique was hard. experience. It's a unique yeah. experience. Um, yeah. Gary, Leslie had some choice where she felt like you were a little dishonest with her. What was your reaction to that? Well, everyone has their own truth, and I'm sure that she felt that way, and it's a legitimate feeling. But I I went into that portion of the show with really one goal. I wanted Leslie to feel better leaving than when she showed up. My job was to listen to her last night and understand what she had to say and offer her my sincerest apologies and hope that she understood that that's how the process is and that unfortunately someone's heart had to be broken and and there was nothing at the end of the day there was nothing i could do about it Mm -hmm. but i do think she felt better after the conversation okay what what did your uh family have to say both of you guys what did your families have to say Oh, my family is really thrilled, absolutely thrilled. So I know you must have seen the hometown date. And so all my my two sisters there, I kept it from them the entire time. And they didn't know until last night. they thought I, I wish i had been there they said my sister just screamed because they fell in love with gary like ah, yes, oh my gosh yeah I, I said did somebody not videotape this this is crazy but no every everyone in my family's thrilled over the moon yeah and, and my family is too they've been with me the entire journey mm-hmm. from the beginning when jesse palmer zoom called with me mm-hmm. and offered me to be the golden bachelor mm-hmm. to yeah. the very end when i proposed to Teresa, mm-hmm. and they were there so our families have been an integral yeah. part of this and they will mm-hmm. continue to be a part yeah. of our relationship yeah what would you say was the most difficult part of this whole process for you guys yeah um actually being open and for me being so open and vulnerable and constantly ha- telling him that I loved him and without getting that back. And, but I had to do that. And because I feel that if you love someone, you should really tell them. And he had to have that information in order to make a, a decision. Mm-hmm. So, if, and, and, and just, you know, the quickened pace, the pace that you're going at that you have to, it's not normal. It's not normal to be mm-hmm. in a house with wonderful women, beautiful, gorgeous, intelligent, wonderful women who are all dating the same man. But yeah, but you have to go in knowing that that's the process and And, accept it. And I think for me, the most difficult part was 
remaining at the top of my game、mm. when I was with each individual woman, not letting down on the intensity of my listening and trying to become extremely aware of everything they said, body language, facial expressions, and everything, because I knew that if I missed one little part, It might make a big difference in my final decision, and that would have been awful.、Mm. So, staying at the top of my game was so hard at、mm. times. And I'm sure all this newfound attention as well, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Lastly,、uh, Gary, just one more question. If there were to be a golden bachelorette, who do you think it should be? So, you know, there's so many good candidates, and this question comes up often. One of the nice things as Teresa and I were, were leaving the episode last night, we got to meet the casting、mm. crew or the casting people who did the casting for our、mm. show. There's who you should be asking who the golden is. Oh, okay. Because they、uh, really did a great job with our cast. <laughs> yes,、um, I'm sure America would agree as well. Thank you guys so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. This is great. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Welcome to the Snapple Market Auditory Experience. Close your eyes. Imagine you're walking into your neighborhood store. You make your way to the back and reach for your favorite Snapple flavor. You can't wait. You take a sip. Whoa, that's a lot of flavor. Mmm. What flavor are you holding? Now open your eyes and check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavorful Snapple near you. You can watch Gary and Teresa tie the knot on ABC on January 4th. Y'all better get those golden tickets because the Chocolate Factory is back in business with Timothy Chalamet at the helm. Timothy and his sidekick in the film, played by Hugh Grant, sit down with extras Terry Seymour. They talk about the making of Wonka, their experience working together, and how they're keeping the film's playful energy everywhere they go. Well, the early reviews are in. And they're sensational. Are you happy? I haven't looked at anything. So I don't know. Yeah, and Hugh will only read negative stuff. Hugh? So. Is this true? Well, I,、uh, yes, I skip the good ones looking for <laughs> little pearls of poison. <laughs> and he goes straight to the bad ones to yeah, reinforce a negative worldview.、Yeah. <laughs> Surely that's not good. No, it's not. It's very unhealthy. <laughs> Especially for this movie, right, Timothy? It's yeah, like, it's so joyful. Uplifting and joyful. And, and generous, yes, and it leaves you heartwarmed and feeling good. <laughs> good for them.、Yeah. I don't think you're going to find any bad ones, any bad reviews for this movie. I hope so. I hope so. He, well, Hugh saw it last night for the first time, and his kids will only see it for the first time next week. So we'll see. They'll be the, re- the real. They'll、things. be the bad review. Yeah. They'll be. I'm sorry. So, Timothy, is this the role of a lifetime? Yeah. Yes, it is. This is a tone and a character I never thought I would get to be in, you know? And do you feel like there are big shoes to fill with Gene Wilder, Johnny Depp? Absolutely. Well, you know, cinematic. Giants, or however one puts it. So, this film's really the companion piece to the Gene Wilder 71 film. You know,、uh, some of the musical numbers from that film are in this one. But this is a different story, this is the origin. And did their performances inspire you in any way?、Uh, well, hugely. You gotta, of course, they're in mind because they're beloved.、Um, And yet, because it's a story of a young Willie, an ambitious Willie, sort of a naive Willie who's full of. Hopes and dreams. He doesn't have that quality in, that we see in both of them, in the other Willy Wonka films of you know, decades of success leading to some sort of 
you know, craziness or however you want to put it. This is a more clear-eyed, young, hopeful man. I saw Gene Wilder a bit in what you were up to. Really? The same slightly demented look in the eye. <laughs> well, I didn't, didn't see that. Didn't get that feeling myself. No, I'll take it as a huge compliment. I would. I, I hope that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> take it as a compliment. Yeah. Oompa Loompa, did you ever, Hugh, at this point in your career, think you'd be playing an Oompa Loompa? I didn't think I'd have sunk this low this fast. <laughs> no. Singing and dancing. Yeah. I mean, we know you can sing and dance because, of course, we've all seen Paddington 2 and we all love it. Mm. So did, did the, the moves come, come naturally? Oh, no, that's always torture. Um, <laughs> this one, that we, uh, we borrowed a lot of the moves from the 1973 film, actually. I just thought they'd be funny watching cross old 63-year-old Englishman putting his head between his legs uh, and all that stuff. So, um, yeah, look, I, I love this team. I loved making Paddington. That's a bit of a lie. I hate my work, <laughs> but I, I loved the way it came out. And I, I do very much admire Paul King, who wrote and directed this film and, and Paddington. And, and uh, so I, yeah, it's a pleasure to work with him. It's so beautiful, the movie, the sets, the clothes, mm -hmm. Everything is so gorgeous. The musical numbers, I know we spoke about the dancing yeah. and the singing. Oh, and by the way, in the reviews, they're saying Timothy is pitch perfect. Wow. <laughs> That's crazy. So just you've said that this role is the most challenging, mm -hmm. demanding, excuse me. Yeah. The most demanding role you've ever played. So how, what did you mean in sense of the dancing and the singing or just... Yeah, it's, it, uh, it just... Uh, I don't know, the, the two very physically intense movies I did before The King and Dune, they were sort of evidently physically demanding. There's war scenes and battles and climbing up huge uh, sand dunes. I don't know, things that are more obvious than this. Because there's an element of play and fun, the, the physical demands sort of snuck up on me. You know, if you're doing 13 takes of a dance number and, um, and maintaining that generous spirit, you know, it's different than you know, a scene in a movie where you uh, are having breakfast at a diner or something, you know, this is uh, uh, this required a yeah, different energy. So it, it, that part snuck up on me, but I felt that my uh, ability to be in that tone got, you know, smoothed out pretty quickly. But at first it was a brand new world to me, you know. An amazing world. Yeah. What well, is talk to you about your fashion? Okay. Because we're all obsessed with what you've been wearing. The lavender suit, the trench coat. Come on, Hugh, help me out here. We know how you love fashion, so. I do. Were you to... Well, it was an awkward moment where in Japan we both put on the same red latex <laughs> jumpsuit. Panic, wasn't it? Panic, yeah. We did a coin toss and then yeah. we got to wear it. You had to wear it. Yeah. You put the lavender on for that one. Yeah, well, he had the same thing. And yeah. I, was, I was upset because I thought I was the only one that had it in the world. Mm. And then we did a coin toss and I won. Yeah. Mine was a little different. Mine had a tail. <laughs> Wonka hits theaters on December 15th. That's all we've got for you today, everybody. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Extra the Podcast. Be sure to listen and follow on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcast. We'll see you next time.